want to welcome you. Glad that you've chosen to be here to worship with us this morning. We're so thrilled to have you here with us. As I often like to do, we like to begin our time um, going to the Lord in prayer. Just asking Him to guide our time here together as we've gathered here today. And so let's pray we begin our time. We thank you. We thank you that, uh, that you are the sinner. We just talked about the
We're going to look at uh, the book of Judges again in just a moment, but our first reading this morning is actually I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 5, and I think as we work through our way through Judges chapter 6 in just a few minutes, you'll see why we chose this to go with it. But Romans chapter 5, so starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 11. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose, shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we will also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. darkness fills the night it cannot hide the light whom shall I fear you crush the enemy underneath my feet you are my sword and shield though trouble lingers still whom shall I fear I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind, the God of angel armies is always by my side, the one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine, the God of angel armies is always by my side. My strength is in your name, for you alone can save. You will deliver me, yours is the victory. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind The God of angel armies Is always by my side The one who reigns forever He is a friend of mine The God of angel armies Is always by my side 
and nothing formed against me shall stand. You hold the whole world in your hands. I'm holding on to your promises. You are faithful. You are faithful. And nothing formed against me shall stand. You hold the whole world in your hands. I'm holding on to your promises. You are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Pray with me before we open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have. Uh, we thank you that you do, do go before us and that you come behind us and that you are the one that uh, leads and guides, and we thank you for that. We pray that uh, as we open your Word, that that would be the case, that you would lead and guide us through your Spirit, that you would show us what you would have for us today. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would correct us, and that you would point us more fully to who you are. In the ways that you love us, we pray that we would leave here having seen you more clearly. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I was talking to some friends uh, actually Friday morning. I meet with a couple of guys here, and we, we were talking about uh, one of the things that came up just in our discussion on Friday morning was how difficult it can be sometimes to be really kind to people that are ugly to you or mean to you. That's just difficult, right? When someone's really ugly to you, it's hard to kind of come back with a kind word. It's, it's not easy to do that. Uh, I was just thinking about this. I don't know how many of you have ever had a job where you work in, the, in a service industry. Uh, something where it's either explicitly implied or maybe implicitly implied that, that the customer's always right. Maybe you've had a job like that. Maybe you've worked in food service. That's, that's a difficult one. As a waiter or a waitress, that's one of the more difficult jobs. Because what happens a lot of times in those jobs, the customer's always right, and a lot of times they're not. And then they're really ugly. And then it's very hard to kind of hold to that, that uh, ethic there that the customer's always right. We always want to serve them, and we always, and it's very difficult. And if you've ever had a job like that, you can know how difficult that can be. Uh, I, I was thinking about different jobs I've had. I had worked in a restaurant once, but probably the most difficult job I ever had was officiating basketball. And uh, I've officiated basketball in a lot of different, like, high school and, and middle school. And, but really, the hardest job I've ever had was officiating basketball for third and fourth graders. And, and it wasn't the third and fourth graders. It was their parents. 
And they were so ugly and so mean and so vicious about third and fourth grade basketball games. It, I was in high school at the time, but it was really, really hard. And so if you've ever had a job like that or you've ever been in a situation like that where, where someone's really ugly to you or it's difficult and you kind of have to grit your teeth and go, okay, I'm just going to be kind here. You know how hard that is. It is difficult. It's very difficult to respond uh, with grace and humility and kindness in the midst of someone being difficult to you. And, and I was thinking about that because as we're going to go back into Judges today, we're going to look at Judges chapter 6. But as I was thinking about that in Judges, is, is we see this kind of over and over, this ugliness and how difficult it would be to respond. But what we see in the book of Judges is the people of Israel, God's chosen people, being extremely ugly to God. And we see it over and over and over again. And they forsake them and they forget them and they kind of turn their back on them. And we see it over and over. But yet we see how God responds in grace over and over with the people that are very rebellious and hard hearted. And so I was thinking about that picture today. And I want us to think about that. We're going to look at that in the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6 today. And we're going to do this the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at Gideon. He is the judge that God raises up today. And we're going to kind of look at the beginning of that. And then we'll continue with that next week. We're not going to get through all of him today. But when we get back into the story of Judges, again, we see the repeating cycle. And I won't go through all this again, but I say this each week. In Judges, you see this over and over and over again. The people turn their back on God. He allows them to feel the consequences. And then they cry out to God. And you see that exact same thing happening here starting in Judges 6. We're going into another cycle. We say that in Judges. We have these cycles over and over again, and we see that repeating, and you see it coming up. And, but what I want us to think about today as we consider that is, is just what's behind their crying out. Right? Why are the people crying out to God? And I want us to really think about their motivations and what they're after and why they're crying out to God. And then secondly, uh, how does God or what does God do? How does he answer them in light of why they're crying out? And by the way, when you look at why they're crying out, it's not a real pretty picture. It's kind of like working in the food service when the customer is always right. And you're trying to answer because what we're going to see is it's not a real pretty picture. But I want you to see how God answers in the midst of that. And then lastly, what does that teach us? When we see that, what does that teach us? And so when I say, why are they crying out this morning? What I really mean, what I really want us to think about is the heart motivation that's behind what they're asking and why they're crying out to God. And so if you want to follow along with me in Judges chapter 6, and, and, and again, it's the same cycle, the same thing you see at the beginning. And so I want to jump in at verse 4 and look what happens here when we consider this first question. Why are they crying out? And so you could say very on the surface, and you see, look at what it says in verse 4 here. They would encamp against them. It's talking about the Midianites who've come against Israel. God's allowed them to come. It says they would encamp against them, and they would devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts. In number, both they and their camels could not be counted. And so they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And so the picture you see here is that God's allowed the Midianites to come in. And they come in, and it's a pretty graphic picture if you think about it. They come in like locusts. If you've ever seen a locust plague, they come in and eat everything. They wipe everything. It's kind of like if you've ever had a bunch of teenage or college-age boys in your house, right? 
discipleship house guys up on the hill. They come over to our house after our our uh, missional community group, and they come in, and whatever food's left, it's like anybody want anything else to eat because they're about to be here, and they come in and it's gone, right? They wipe everything out. That's kind of the picture of a locust plague, and that's what you see the Midianites doing. It says they came in and they wipe out everything, right? It says there's no sustenance left. There's nothing left for the people of Israel as they come in. And so they're exploiting them. They're coming in. They're taking their hard uh, work of growing crops and having what they need, and they come in and they take them. And so you see that there's nothing left behind, and so it says, so they cried out to God. Well, that makes sense, right? There's no food. There's nothing there. I don't have anything. God, can you help us? And so they cry out. But I want you to see how we even got to this point. Again, this is review, but it's important that we see this each time. Look at verse 1, why they're even in this mess. Because verse 1, it tells us, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So God allows this to happen. He's allowed them to come in and, and come in like the locust plague and take all this stuff because they've done evil in the sight of the Lord. And we'll talk about what that looks like in a second. But they've turned their back on God, and so that's what happens. And so that's why they're in the situation. But what I want us to really think about is what's behind their crying out. What is their heart's motivation in this? And I want to just ask the question, are they heartbroken over the sin of forsaking God and doing evil in his sight that they're now crying out to God? Or are they just upset that their stuff is gone? Right? I want you to think about what's the motivation there. It's kind of like with uh, my children. My boys will uh, be not getting along or fighting or something's happened. And, and I'll threaten the, the best thing uh, for for punishment is you're not going to get dessert, right? Usually late in the day is when they get to work. So they're kind of tired and then at school they get home and they're getting on each other's nerves. And I say, if you do it again, you're not going to get dessert. And then all of a sudden, bam, he hits his brother. And it's like, that's it. You're going to bed in five minutes. No dessert. That's it. And then it's like weeping and gnashing of teeth and falling on. No, no. You know, like, and it's so you would think you've taken away the worst thing in the world because you've removed dessert. They don't get dessert. And so the question is, when that's the case, are they weeping and gnashing their teeth because they disobeyed me? Oh, Father, I've seen my sin and I'm so sorry. No. I'm not getting dessert. I want that dessert, right? That's exactly why, right? I mean, my kids are just as sinful as all other kids, right? They want the dessert. They want that thing. It's the same thing that we see here with the Israelites, right? They come in and they take all their stuff and then suddenly it's like, God, we need you. Our food is gone. They've taken our crops. They've taken all our stuff. They're laying waste to all of this. And so the picture that you get here is not that they're truly repentant. They're not sorry for their sin. They're sorry for the consequences of their sin. They're sorry that they're now being oppressed. They're sorry that because they've forsaken God, now these things have happened. And I want you just to think about that with with your own life. Is that ever you? Do we ever do that? Right? We know maybe something's not right and we know we're not following God. And then all of a sudden we get found out or the consequences come up. And then it's like, oh, no, now I need you, God. Right? Can you fix this for me? And I think we, if we're honest, we all do that at different times. Right? That we do that because of what we see. The consequences, not because of our heart being broken over our sin. And so that's the picture that we see here. 
And, and I just want to paint that picture for you of, of them. Uh, really, the heart that's behind it is not really a truly repentant heart. It's just because of what's in front of them. And I feel like I can say that uh, with confidence here because of the way this story plays out and what it tells us. Right? And you say, well, how do you know for sure? Maybe they are really repentant. And there may have been some repentant people. There may have been people in the people of Israel that were truly repentant. We don't know exactly, but we do know a pretty big majority of them aren't. And I'll show you why. I'm going to skip ahead in the story for a second. If you don't know the story, I don't want to confuse you. But God's going to call Gideon, and he's going to bring him, and he's going to be the one that's going to raise up as the judge to lead the people back. Similar story that we see repeating in Judges. But part of what he's going to tell them to do is in verse uh, 25. Look there with me for just a second, and I'll tell you why I think they're not repentant. Why they really are just upset their stuff has been taken. Because look at what God tells Gideon to do. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God. And so notice what's going on, what God's telling Gideon to do. And we'll get to this part of the story in a minute. We're jumping ahead. But we'll get to it in a second. But what he tells him to do is, I want you to go and cut down the idols. Because they're worshiping Baal and they have an Asherah. That's a goddess that they would worship and they would ask to bless their crops and all these things. They're still doing this. They have these idols in the, in the uh, land with them. And they're worshiping. And what you see, the picture that's there, is they're trying to call out to God while still worshiping these other idols. They're not truly repentant at all. They're not going back to what God's told them of you make me sinner and me alone and you drive out other idols. They're actually worshiping other idols while they're saying, God, can you come fix us? They're divided. There's a mess here. They're still doing that. And so what you see as they cry out to God is they're not truly repentant. They're just sorry for what's been taken from them. There are people that are not seeking God, but they're upset that they got caught. And so I want you to think about that picture. And by the way, does God know their hearts? Does he know the intentions of what they're doing? Right? Psalms 139 tells us. He knows the words before we even say them. He knows everything we're thinking and doing. And so that's the picture of what the people are doing. Right? We said at the very beginning, why are they crying out? That's why they're crying out. For the most part, anyway, the people are crying out because they've gotten caught. And God clearly knows that. And so the question becomes, what does God do? What does God do in the light of an unrepentant, self-centered, selfish people that are worshiping idols while calling out to him? What does he do in that position? And so I want you to look. He does a few things. Right? There's a few different steps here in what he does. But look at the first thing he does in verse 8, chapter 1 and verse 8. And so he hears this. He knows what's going on. And then it says, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet. To the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so I want you to think about what he does first. He sends a prophet to preach to him prophet shows up and look at what he says and this may sound a little perplexing when I first say this but what happens is the prophet shows up and he preaches the good news 
He preaches the gospel, essentially. The gospel as far as they knew it in the Old Testament. They said, well, wait a second, the gospel is the New Testament, the fulfillment of Jesus and what he's done for us. Correct, that's true. But in the Old Testament, what you have here is God says, I came and I saved you and I took you out of slavery and I did this thing for you and I brought you to this land and I set you up there and I showed you how much I love you and that you can trust me. I've done it all for you. Now I'm just asking you to live in response to that. Do you see what he's saying? I saved you by no doing of your own and now I just want you to live out of it. That's the good news. We can't save ourselves. They couldn't save themselves from slavery. God does it for them. And so he reminds them, this is the way I work. I save you by no doing of your own. I bring you out of slavery. I do this for you. And I set you into this. Right? And so he reminds them. The first thing he does is remind them of the way he saved them. Right? He preaches good news to them. Sends a prophet to remind them. And we think about when people are ugly to us and what they're doing is that's your first thing to think. I'm going to tell them how much God loves them. I'm going to remind them how much I love them here. No, that's not usually what we do. But that's what God does here. It's a beautiful picture. But I want you to remember that they still have these idols. They're still worshiping idols while they call out to God. They're still, uh, and, and this is not my words, this is the way the Bible talks about it. They're still cheating on God. All throughout the Bible is a picture of Jesus being the husband and the church, his people being his bride. And he is the faithful husband even when we are the unfaithful bride. And we see that all the way through the church. All the way through the scripture, I should say. And so the picture that is here is they are still clinging to their idols. And yet God's uh, way to come to them is just to remind them how much he loves them. I want you to think about that picture. Put it in. It's like a, a wife comes home to find her husband cheating on her. Right? And he's not really repentant. He says, please don't divorce me because I don't want to lose my car and I don't want to lose my house. But please forgive me. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to keep my mistress. That's really what they're doing because they're still worshiping idols. Do you see that? And yet God's response is, let me remind you how much I love you and what I've done for you. Do you see the, the, the picture here of what God's doing and the way he's loving them and the way he comes to them and reminds them? But notice, too, we can always miss this on one side or the other. Even though he comes and he reminds them in a lot of ways, he's preaching grace. He's, he's reminding them of how I've saved you and what I've done for you. He doesn't excuse sin. Right? God is always completely merciful and gracious and loving and at the same time is perfect justice. In righteousness always. And so you see in verse 10, he says, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in which you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Right? But you've sinned. You've ignored me. Right? And so even though the first thing he does is send the prophet to, to preach grace and to remind them and show them how he saved them, he also calls sin, sin. So that's the first thing he does. Right? But then the second thing, and remember, the people are, are worshiping their idols. They're not really seeking him. And so what does he do next? Look at what it says. It says, uh, verse 11. So he sends the angel of the Lord came and sat. And it says he came to the son Gideon. This is verse 11. Who was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has he... Uh, why has all this happened to us? 
And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And so I want you to see the second thing he does. First, he reminds them of the way he saved them. And then the second thing is he says, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to raise up up a leader to to lead you out of this. I'm going to remind you of how I save you. And then I'm going to send a redeemer to claim you back from this. This is an unrepentant, self-centered, selfish people that are still worshiping idols. And this is what God does. Reminds them of the way he saves and then he sends a leader to come. And so he says this to Gideon and he says, you're going to do what? I'm going to tell you to. Gideon's unsure. Gideon, a lot like Barak was last week. I'll go if you go. Do you remember that? He says that to Deborah. I'll go if you go with me. Gideon's like, you sure I'm the right guy? We see this over and over. Moses, you sure? He says, I don't know. And so God says, no, yes, you're going to do this. And he gives him uh, directions. He says, you're going to go in and you're going to tear down the idols. Gideon's not too sure about that. He asks for a sign, but God says, no, you're going to do this. And what we see with Gideon is very much what we see uh, God doing with all these people that have the, the doubts over and over. As he, he gives him a sign and he reminds him. But then what we see with Gideon is a lot like Barak. He goes and does it, but he's kind of halfway, you know. He's obedient. He does do what God calls him to, but you can see his doubts because it tells us, that he goes and he tears down the idols, but he does it under the cover of darkness because he doesn't want anybody to see him. Right? So he does what God tells him, but I'm going to do it where nobody's seeing me. And so what he does is he goes and he tears down the idols. But then the next thing I want you to see that he does, and so he preaches to them, he sends a leader, he tells them to go tear down the idols, but then look at the next thing that God does and the way he does it. And this is such a beautiful picture what happens here. So Gideon does as God says, 25 and 26, 27, he goes. And then in verse 28, look at what it says. The men of the town rose early in the morning. And behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull offered on the altar had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? They searched and inquired and they found out that it was Gideon, the son of Joash, right? And so they're furious. They're really mad that he's torn down their idols. Again, it's revealing where their hearts are. They're still fully invested in these idols. They're not truly repentant. You see that. And so look at what happens. They go to Gideon's house. And they say, bring out your son. This is verse 30. That he may die, for he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash, this is Gideon's dad, said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerob Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So follow this. God's plan to a rebellious people. Remind them how much you love them. Then raise up a leader to pursue them despite they're not really repentant. Send him in to tear down the idols and then graciously reveal the futility of the idols that they were worshiping. Do you see that? And I love the picture that these idols are at Joash's house and God reveals to him, Hey, wait a second. If this is truly a God, they can contend for themselves. Makes sense. 
Right? If this is a powerful God that we should be worshiping, we don't have to take up for him. He'll do it. And so he says that. And so what you see is through all this that God is showing them the futility of, of, of uh, worshiping other idols. And so even though they're not repentant, even though they're not seeing it, he pursues them. He reminds them of the way he loves them. And then he begins to reveal the idols of their heart and the futility of serving those things. And God is just being so gracious to these people all the way through. Over and over again. He's actually doing the same thing in this story with Gideon. I mentioned there at the beginning that when he comes and he calls Gideon, right, verse 14, and the Lord turned to him, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you will strike the Midianites as one man. Right? And so here's Gideon unsure, scared, not sure how this is going to work out. And the way God answers that is he's patient and he's loving and he gives them a sign and he encourages them. And he says, this is going to work because I'm here. Don't worry, it's not you, it's because I'm with you. And so you see it even with Gideon. That God graciously just keeps working and, and pursuing a sinful, rebellious people. And I want you just to think about it as we get towards the end of just this part of the story. We'll pick up with Gideon next week and look at the rest of kind of how he plays out. But as we get to this part in the story and you see what's happening here, I just want to ask, do you know this story? Have you ever seen this story? Maybe a little bit? You should because it's my story and it's yours. Right? A sinful, rebellious people that God continues to graciously, lovingly pursue. Right? That's the picture that's there. That's, that's pretty much my life. Right? A gracious God that despite uh, the ways I ignore him, he continues to pursue. And so you see that right in the midst of this picture. Right? And I just want you to think about it for a second. Do you ever cry out to God because things have gotten really bad, not because you're actually pursuing Him, just because other things are really rough. God, I need you to fix this. Right? The thing that I really, 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 really value in my life has kind of fallen apart, so I need you now to fix that thing. Right? That's what they're doing. We do that all the time. God, I need you to fix this. Or I'm not sure about that, and so I need you now to come and fix this for me. Right? And what that looks like. And we do that over and over. But I want us to think about what we learn from Gideon's story for us. And we'll end with that. What do we learn in that story? When we see the way God pursues an unrepentant, self-centered people. And what we learn and what we see is that it's good news. It's really, really good news. That even though we're selfish and sinful... You know, this picture here is not just a story of something God did 3,000 years ago to this guy Gideon and this people that were unrepentant. This is a story of who God is, still is. This is the way he works. He lovingly, graciously pursues a rebellious, unrepentant, self-centered people. And he reveals the idols of our heart. And he begins to show us those things and show us how he meets our needs. It's not that you can do this, it's because I'm with you. 
in the picture all the way through is the way God loves us. And so I want you to look closer at this story, and we'll end kind of here. This will help pull all this together. When we consider this story and what's going on and how it's working, I want you just to ask this question. Here's this walking through with God and showing Gideon and pursuing these people. And I just want you to think about this. Who is this with Gideon? Who's spending time with Gideon here? Lovingly, graciously pursuing him. Just look again. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpah, which belonged to Joash the Aborazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now let's stop there for just a second. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. And his response is, I got a couple questions. Now he's respectful in how he does it. Please, sir, why is this going on? Right? But, but there's something striking to me when you look at this and you watch this. Right? Different times in the Bible, angel of the Lord shows up. And begins to speak, and the people fall on their face and they tremble. Right? They they immediately see it and they're scared to death. Right? Imposing figure. But yet here, Gideon says, uh, "Sir, I got a question. If you don't mind, let me just ask you this question, please, sir. Can I ask you this? Right? And so it's a little different. But then look at what it says next, verse fourteen. And the Lord turned to him and said. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? Did not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Because my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. You see that in verse 14? And in verse 16, who's talking to him? Who does he see? It doesn't say an angel of the Lord, it says the Lord. The Lord spoke to him and said, I am with you and I've got you. And so the picture that we have here of who is the kind, gentle, patient man who encourages Gideon despite his doubts and fears, who's coming to save these people despite unrepented, self-centered, selfish hearts. It's Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, coming and sitting with Gideon. I've got you. I can almost see it, right? Jesus said, look at me. It's okay. I'm here. I've got you. You don't have to do this. You're right. You are the weakest. Don't worry about it. I'm with you. And he lovingly, patiently, and as Gideon's going, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I need a sign. And so what is he? He patiently goes, okay, I'll give you a sign. Right? It's the same picture we have in the Gospels. Jesus lovingly meeting people where they are and walking with them and talking to them and showing them. And so when you see the story here, that God is pursuing a people that aren't truly repentant. They just want God to fix some things, which is all of us at different points. That's the picture and that's the story that emerges. But what I want you to see that in spite of that, he continues to lavish on them 
He continues to pursue them. He continues to reveal the idols of their heart. He shows them the futility of walking without him and him not being the center. And he continues to do that. And so when you ask, whose story is that? Where have we seen that? I read it to you from Romans 5 this morning, verse 8. But God shows his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we are running from him and we are unrepentant and we don't deserve grace, there he comes. I'm going to lay down my life for you. You are my bride. And even though you have been unfaithful, I'm going to continue to pursue you and remind you how much I love you and show you over and over. See, when we read these stories, the story of Gideon in the Old Testament 3,000 years ago, we're not just reading about some guy a long time ago. We're reading about the way God works. We're seeing Jesus and the way he loves and pursues and reminds and brings us back. And so when we look at this, this story is our story. It's the way God's moving and working and drawing back. And so I just want to make one quick uh, application to this and we'll end here. But when we read that and then we think about coming across and and up against people that are very ugly and very unkind and very self-centered. And we see that over and over. And maybe as you try to share your faith or you try to invest in people, they can be very ugly back to you. So how are we to respond? Right? We're to extend the grace that we have received. We're to glorify that is to point back, reflect who God is in this world in which we walk. And so we have opportunities when things are really ugly and people are really unkind to do just like God has done for us. I'm going to love you. I'm going to remind you how much God loves you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to spend time with you. And I'm going to seek to reveal the idols of your heart and how they can never satisfy you and point you back to Jesus. And so we have the wonderful privilege as the body of Christ to model the Lord we serve in everyday life everywhere we go. And that's a great privilege that we get. And so please, when we're reading through Judges, don't ever forget that this is still the same God and the same story. And even though it happened a long time ago, and even though there's some really weird stories in Judges, it's still God moving in those ways. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for the ways that you show us. I thank you for just the beautiful picture that you are, the way that you are so full of grace, that you are long-suffering, that you are merciful, that you are kind, that you love us even when we are so selfish, that you even use our selfishness to point us back to who you are. We thank you for that. I pray that we would leave here today overflowing with thankfulness for a God who loves us so much. And that is so kind and gracious to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.